here, chapter number three. And then um, as we go, uh, we'll also uh, be dealing with Ephesians chapter number five. So let's actually begin uh, in Ephesians five and go down to uh, verse number, let's begin at verse 20. And then we'll go back over to 1 Peter. So Ephesians 5, verse number 20. The Bible says, Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. What Ephesians 5 really lays the foundation for is not just the relationship between husbands and wives, but it also lays the relationship primarily between Christ and the church. Ephesians 5 is often used as the responsibility chapter of what wives have responsibility to do and what husbands have responsibility to do. And that is true. But we also want to remember that Paul is using the example of the husband and wife relationship to show a picture of how Christ loves and cares for the church. Now, in our study in 1 Peter, uh, you'll notice that Peter uses some of the same terminology he is speaking in a, a more of a practical application of this truth. Now, that's not to say that he doesn't, is not considering Ephesians, he's not, that he's not considering what Paul had written. I believe that he was. I believe that he was fully aware of what, uh, what uh, Paul uh, would have written in those days. But in 1 Peter chapter number 3, uh, we see the very first word of that chapter is the word likewise. Now, that word is important because that's a connecting thought between chapter 3 and chapter number 2. And we remember in chapter number 2, uh, we were studying about how P Peter was teaching us to give honor and obedience and respect to kings and leaders and people who hold office. It was the recognition of authority or the recognition of leadership. So this chapter begins with, likewise, or in the same manner, this is the way the relationship between, look what it says, likewise, ye wives be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. So in the same manner in which you subject yourself to authority, to the government, to kings, to leaders, it says, wives, subject yourself in the same manner. 
Now, this will seem a little one-sided in these seven verses we're going to look at tonight. This does not mean that there is a greater responsibility on the wife than there is on the husband. However, Peter does in the first six verses of this chapter, he primarily deals with the wives. And then in verse number seven, he deals with the husbands. Now, many a wife has asked the question, why is there so much time spent on wives and why is there so little time and chapters spent on the husbands? And I would tell you that if you take the Bible as a whole, that is not true. In some of these texts, it seems that way. But remember that in the relationship that's talked about in Ephesians chapter number five, Christ is the husband and the church is the wife. So when we say this, this, this gives husbands less responsibility or less things that they need to fulfill, that is not true at all. As a matter of fact, we, we know that in what we just read in Ephesians 5.25, the Bible says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. I still have yet to meet a husband who's fulfilled that obligation. I have yet to meet one. I'm sure not. I'm not he. I have not reached that point yet. But yet that's what he says. But he's, he, Paul's writing that in the context, Christ as the husband so loved the church, the wife, that he gave himself for it. Giving is the ultimate sacrifice. So before we look at this and we think, all right, the wives have got these uh, un, unreasonable expectations, uh, there are great responsibilities put on both the husband and the wife. Now again, the Bible is simply talking about the order in the home. He's not talking about uh, of importance. He's not talking about value. He's just simply saying in order. Uh, if we were to look at the order between us and Christ, who is the head? Christ is the head. We're not the head. We are to be in subjection to him. Ephesians 5 tells us that we're submit ourselves one to another in the fear of God. We are to submit ourselves as husbands and wives unto the Lord. Now, some might say, well, how does this apply to someone who's not a husband? How does it apply to someone who's not a wife? It applies to all of us. Now, there are very practical applications here, and some of these are extremely practical, but if we, if we don't look at these two chapters together, we would get the wrong idea of what Peter is trying to say. Because some of the terminology he uses makes it sound like the wives, again, have a greater responsibility. And I would tell you again, I don't think that's the case. But let's look at these verses together, and we'll try to take these uh, verse by verse. It says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. Notice, the wives are being addressed here, be in subjection, or that is to be in submission to, to your own husbands. Notice the word, to your own husbands. Not someone else's husband, not someone else's home, but to your own husband, whoever that husband is. That, if any, obey not the word. The if there refers to the husband. So wives, be in subjection to your own husband so that if any husband, your own husband, does not obey the word, that they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. The Bible lays out very clearly that the husband is supposed to be the head in the home. Again, it doesn't make him more valuable. It doesn't make him more important. It just simply says this is the order in which God has given. If we go all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to the book of beginnings, we will see in, in Genesis 3.16 uh, that God ordained the order 
of the home. And he simply said, unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now, we often look at that and and we think about the word rule, and we understand that God is not giving the right for, uh, even in this case, Adam to rule with an iron fist. He is simply acknowledging that the man or the husband is to be the head. Not a ruler as a, as a, with an iron fist, but simply the head. That's all that he is simply saying. Ephesians 5 back that very same thought up that when he's talking about the word ruler, he's talking about order. Uh, once we establish that, once you establish the fact that Christ uh, through the word is talking about order, not importance. He's talking about order. The church, as the bride, submits itself to Christ as the head. That's the order. We would never think about subverting Christ's authority in our life. We would never say we should be above Christ. That's all that he is simply saying here. So a woman who desires to be in the will of God is going to be in subjection to him, not out of fear, not out of that, uh, that uh, he makes her do those things. But if he, she is a lover of the Lord, what she's going to want to do is follow the word of God in this matter. Now, the individual he's talking about here, you notice that Peter writes that wives be in subject to your own husbands if they, any obey not the word. Even in a wife that's married to an unbeliever, is still to live in subjection to him. Now, this is one of the the very toughest aspects of this. But here's the reason it says that, that they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wife. Now, the wife here who has an unbelieving husband should seek to win her husband to Christ by her godly living. That's what Peter is speaking of here. Uh, just being simply submissive. Subjection is not a license for the husband to lord over her or to command her, but it is, it is also not a term that means that a wife is to be just passive. Okay? This, this is not, uh, we've heard this cliche, and I'm not trying to offend anybody. Uh, she's not just to be referred to as the little woman who doesn't say anything and doesn't do anything. She, she just simply cowers in fear and listens and obeys her husband. That's not what he's talking about at all. This is, this is order. This is actually a, a great picture. Here's, he's saying this is the influence that a godly wife can have over an unbelieving husband. When the unbelieving husband here observes the holy conduct of his wife, along with her love for God, her faith in Christ, and with a reverence or an acknowledgement of his authority, he may be led to seek the Lord. Now, let's correct something here that this, the Bible does not mean that a wife can win a husband without the word of God. Okay? That's not what it means. It doesn't mean he can be saved without the word of God. What it means is that it, while, her con- while her conversation or conduct will lead him, by him seeing that, will lead him to want to seek the Lord. That's what the idea is here. So when we think about this, it's not saying that a wife can be so godly that she can just make him get saved without the word of God. The word of God, it's by faith. Here, it's the hearing of the word of God is how we're saved. But she can have an influence on him. 
Now look what it says. While they behold, now the they there refers to husbands, behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Now that word chaste simply means to not use language that's contrary to the marriage covenant. It was an interesting, I studied that word and I, it's, it's, it, the, the, the tone of it is more about what you speak of or how you speak. And almost every commentator came up with that same, that the tone of that word is she doesn't use language that's contrary to the covenant of marriage. Now, we could chew on that for a few minutes and think about what that could mean. What, what, what is that? Things that go, uh, would go against the covenant. Coupled with fear. Now, this fear is not the fear of punishment. This is, this is again, is reverence. All right? This is just, again, this isn't uh, bowing before him as if he's some kind of a king. This is just reverence. It's, it's a respect. So, while these husbands, in this case, the context, this unbelieving husband sees your language that doesn't speak contrary to the marriage covenant, coupled or connected with your reverence and respect, he may be one. He may be led to seek the Lord. Now look at verse 3. Now again, now he switches back over to specifically the wife and her appearance. Again, a lot of this has been, a lot of these verses have been taken well out of context, and we're going to deal with a little bit of that tonight. Who's adorning, or the way that she is dressed, the way that she presents herself, this adorning uh, goes uh, more than just the actual outfit she puts on. This is even the way she conducts herself. Okay, so it's who's adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair. Okay, adorning. Uh, in other words, it's the outward. Now, in, in an outward manner, we could consider the things, what are some of the outward things that uh, women would adorn themselves? How would they do that? Uh, it might be, uh, we've heard the examples, it may be with their hair, with the jewelry, with the clothing. And settle this now, Peter is not condemning those things. He's not saying a woman can't look nice, a woman cannot uh, have jewelry, a woman cannot wear uh, clothing that is uh, uh, with the times, or whatever you want to say. What he's simply saying is he's simply telling them, don't let that be the main thing. Now, he, he mentions the plating of the hair. We don't necessarily comprehend this, but that plating is actually elaborate braiding. Now, again, I, I've never counseled, had to counsel anybody who has questioned and has said, uh, is my hair braided too elaborately? I, I've, I don't anticipate I will ever have to deal with that. But for the Jews, okay, for the Jews, there were... Women in their day whose job, whose business was it to just simply plate or elaborately braid women's hair. Now, he's not forbidding it. He's just saying, don't let that be the main thing that defines you. Or the wearing and the wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel. 
Again, he's not forbidding jewelry. He's not forbidding uh, doing of the hair. Uh, if you were to uh, look at the daughters of Abraham, we won't turn there tonight, but if you want to mark these down in Genesis 24:22, Genesis 24:30, Genesis 24:47, and Genesis 24:53, the daughters of Abraham were provided with items such as this. So if you go read Genesis 24, you will find in that chapter, you will find it being referenced that the daughters of Abraham were given these things. So those things in of themselves are not wrong. Okay, it's not, uh, there are people who take the approach that what he means is I should never wear any jewelry and I should not do any of this. That's not what he's talking about at all. He's not forbidding the modest clothing in which a woman might wear. Again, the Bible principle is modesty. The Bible does not give us specific uh, lengths. It doesn't give us how how tight it doesn't get it doesn't talk about those things it says that the principle is modesty and by the way that modesty goes for men too it's not just women so the bible principle is modesty if a woman is known for her outward appearance more than her inward beauty then there might be a problem so what peter is driving home here and that's what he's going to say verse four but let it be the hidden man of the heart the inward man in other words, these things aren't wrong. These outward appearances are not wrong. But let the inward, your godly character, your godly attitude, your godly personality, let, that th let those things be the real beauty. Okay, that's, that's what the idea here is. Again, it's, it's not that women are supposed to be completely restricted. They cannot wear nice things. They cannot have nice apparel. That they cannot have jewelry. Um, it is simply that that is not what they're primarily known for. People over the years have tried to put me in a box and actually ask, I've had somebody one time ask me that question. They've asked me, they said, is that woman going for, and they had me look, and she, she had a lot of jewelry on, she had a lot of gold, she was, she was dressed nicely. And I said, that's not for me to determine. Just because she looks nice, I don't, that doesn't tell me anything. And, and just because she, she has some jewelry on, that doesn't make it wrong. But she should be known for her, at her inward more than her outward. 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10, uh, Paul, as he was writing to Timothy, he says, In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Shamefacedness is an interesting word. It's inner modesty. Now here's what's interesting. We've gotten so focused on outward modesty that we have lost sight of the fact that you could be perfectly outwardly modest but inwardly immodest. Your heart could be immodest. The apostle Paul here to Timothy is telling Timothy that women regarding their clothing or their apparel, they shouldn't necessarily be extravagant, but they should be modest. He's not forbidding braiding of hair, but he's talking about a display of outwardness which demonstrates vanity or excess. 
Again, I've seen many times preachers trying to determine to women what, what is excess. I don't think we were ever called to determine that. I think that has, that has been something that the inner or the inward man or the, the, the person on the inside, that's the only thing that they can possibly know. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I dressing this way to attract? Am I dressing this way so that I can get attention? Or am I more concerned with the things of God? That's really the simplicity of this. People have twisted these texts for so many years. It's not difficult what he's saying here. Now look again at 1 Peter 3, 4. He says, But let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible. He's comparing here, he says, the, the, the character of the inside, the hidden man of the heart, the internal disposition, we might say, that, that's, that is incorruptible. But the things that we do outwardly, those are corruptible. That, that nice gold, that nice apparel, that nice braiding of your hair, all those things that you do, those things are going to go away. They're going to fall away. They're not going to last forever. But then he gives an example of what the hidden man or the inward looks like. Even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Let your concern be toward making the inward person, the hidden man, the beauty. It's not seen with a natural eye. It's not seen as the thing that is corruptible. Outward ornaments, outward things are displayed. It's better to be known for your inward beauty of having a meek, sweet, quiet spirit which lasts eternally than to impress people for a small time with corruptible ornaments and outward beauty that will one day soon fade away. Even the most beautiful appearances outwardly in this life will soon fade away. They will not last forever, but the inward will last forever. So that leads us to consider this thought. What does the world look to first? Well, the world idolizes physical beauty. What the Word of God is simply saying is that we ought to prefer godliness in the heart as opposed to what the world idolizes. Have you ever noticed that what the world idolizes, physical beauty, changes? What was considered beautiful even 50 years ago has moved. You're, you're, you're constantly chasing it. You'll never catch it. So what do we teach our children? What do we teach our grandchildren? We teach our children, even at the very youngest of age, that beauty to, to admire beauty in another is the inward beauty of a heart that is submitted to God. So the most beautiful thing a woman can do, all right, in this case, in this context, is to have a heart that's submissive to God. That's the most beautiful thing a woman can do. Okay, now that doesn't mean she can't look nice outwardly. It doesn't mean that she can't do any of those things. It just means that that's where true beauty is to be found. And then verse 5, he says, For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Peter uses an example of holy women. 
He's using women of the past as an example. Women who trusted in God. That word trusted there literally means that their only hope was in God. In the context, they didn't have hope in the outward adorning. They didn't have hope in the things that were corruptible. They didn't have hope in the plating of their hair or the wearing of gold or of fancy clothes. Their hope was in God alone. That's what Peter is saying. Follow that example. Follow the example of the holy women of old. They were in subjection to the laws of God. There's a, a passage over in the book of Titus, if you can find that quickly. First and second Timothy, and then you have Titus. Titus chapter number 2, verses 3 through 5. This gives the example of really a picture of, a picture of women. It's not uh, complete, but it gives us a, a, a great picture of the godly women that Peter was referring to. He says, the aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Now, Paul, as he's writing uh, to Titus, he mentions aged women, he mentions teaching, he mentions being keepers, all right? But I want you to notice a couple things about this. Uh, the aged women, that they be, have behavior as becometh holiness. Now, what does that mean? That word, holy, uh, holy living or holy behavior, is marked by reverence reverence of God. It's living in the presence of God always. So what he's saying here is women live in the presence of God always. Okay, that's, that is straight interpretation, what it says here. He says they shouldn't be false accusers, accusers of the brethren. They should not be given to wine. But rather, and these things, look, verse 3 is connected with verse 4 not given to much wine, teach of good things, that they may teach. They become the example. The example of young women to be sober. Okay, that's not just about alcohol. That's about having self-control. To love their husbands, to love their children. Okay, what greater thing can there be? Teach, love their husbands, love their children. Discreet. It, it's the same word as sober. It's temperate. And then it mentions chaste. Remember, we just looked at the chaste before, and, and the chaste in the context of the husband and wife was no language contrary to the marriage covenant. Chaste is simply that language that is appropriate. Now, it mentions keepers at home. This does not mean, this does not mean that a woman can only be exclusively a worker in the home. If you study Proverbs 31, you will see that that Proverbs 31 woman was quite the entrepreneur. And she was quite the worker outside of the home. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That woman was providing and to help provide for her family. And she spoke well of her husband at the gates. Keepers at home, that's part of her responsibilities, but it's not an absolute limitation. I've heard preachers stand up for years, and I've heard them say that if a woman works outside the home, she is violating Scripture. That's not true at all, okay? 
That just simply says that it's not, not limited to just that, but that's part of her responsibility. And then it says, obedient to their own husbands. Again, to their own husbands. Again, submitting to his authority. Why? That the word of God be not blasphemed. Why are women to live this way? In order that the word of God is not treated as something that is untrue. So really, when you take all of these texts and you look at them together and look what Peter was writing, the proper context is to understand what all these verses mean and to come to this conclusion. Peter says, follow the manner of the example of these holy women that have gone before. Okay? Now he uses the example back in our text, 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter 3 verse 6, he uses the example of Sarah and Abraham. Even as, in other words, here's an example of a holy woman. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. This one always gets, gets a, someone to stand up and say, I'm not calling my husband Lord. Well, that's good because that's not exactly what it's saying. He's not saying that women, wives have to call their husbands Lord. It is more of a recognition of his headship. Okay, I've, I've, I've heard some, some guys who are just so full of themselves who've actually said that this is what that means, is that my wife should refer to me as Lord. That's not what this is at all. This is simply an acknowledgement or a recognition, not a matter of address. I've heard some men who just fully do not understand, or maybe they do understand, they're trying to twist and pervert the scriptures who have said, yes, I expect my wife to obey me in everything. I expect her to call me Lord, and I rule over her. I tell her what to do, when to do it, and I say that's not biblical at all. Look what it says. Whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Now, think about the life of Abraham and Sarah. One of the things that Sarah is known, and we see it all the way, when, when God called Abraham to go, and Abraham said where, and he didn't know where, and Sarah said, Abraham, where are we going? And he said, I don't know, I'm paraphrasing there. She went. She just, she just followed. Um, she respectfully, and there is, a, there is an example, someone will say there's an example of where uh, Sarah does call him Lord. And all that is is she's acknowledging, she's acknowledging the headship. But it says women are called the true daughters of Sarah. As you follow her example, not being uh, shaken by, by your rights or being shaken by what you're missing out on or what God has given you to do. After all, remember, he's told them already, you're not seeking the approval of man. You're not seeking the approval of the world. You're seeking the approval of God. These are the things that are acceptable in the sight of God. That's, that's what he has in mind here. So when we think about this, Sarah and the faithful women of the Old Testament behaved in a way they gave proper respect to their husbands as the word of God requires. And they did that, it says, literally, were not afraid with any amazement. In other words, they were not afraid of this. This, is, this they acknowledged as being the right thing. Now, I told you at the beginning, there are six verses that quickly give you what the Bible says is responsibility of wives. And again, it sounds like, wow, the wives have all this responsibility. What about the husbands? But what, they only get one verse? Well, let's read this verse and let's see if it's any easier. Because I would dare say it's not. 
He says, likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. Ye husbands, dwell. Now, the word dwell doesn't just mean to live under the same roof. It's very similar to what Peter said about beholding your chaste conversation. In other words, language that does not, it's not contrary to the marriage covenant. To dwell with them according to, the, to knowledge is to do all of the duties and responsibilities of wedlock. In other words, what does being a husband require? Whatever that is, you're expected to do it all. All that's required of a husband to do. Now, if you go back to Ephesians 5 and you look at what we read before and you read that in correlation with what we just read here, you will find out that the Bible says that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So here the husbands are literally told, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Now, what are some things about Christ's love for the church? Christ's love is exclusive, okay? It's exclusive to one church, one bride. Christ himself sacrificed himself for her. He gave himself for the church. The husband is to give himself for his wife. Why does he do all these things? That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought women to, men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. So what do we see here? We see that the picture of Christ, his love for the church, Christ was gave in order that they might be presented glorious. You know what the greatest thing a husband can do is to lead his wife to become holy, to become righteous, to become uh, this picture of holiness. Not because it comes from him, but that's part of what he's doing. He's dwelling with her. Husbands ought to be attentive. They ought to be sympathetic for, to her needs, to her, what she needs, as if it was his own. Because literally, verse 31 tells us, for a man, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Literally, husbands are to care for her as if it's happening to him. If the wife hurts, the husband hurts. If, if the wife needs something, he ought to feel it as if it's happening to him. It literally says, For no man ever yet hate his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Again, God has given the example that a husband is to cherish and to protect. Cherish means to protect her from danger and harm. Nourish is to provide what's needed to live. All of these things are pictures of what the Lord says is the proper order. Dwell with her according to knowledge. Now, a lot of times husbands say, well, it doesn't say anything about respecting her. It doesn't say anything about honoring her. It doesn't say anything about recognizing her. You're wrong. That's what the word likewise means. Likewise, just as it's been said for the wives about honoring and respecting and recognizing you should do the same thing. And here's how you do that, husbands. You do that by dwelling with her according to knowledge. 
Your wife is not a slave. She is a loving companion. She's not a subject to be ordered around by a rod of law, but she is a part of you. She's a part of that husband. She is to be treated as if it is himself. What a lesson there. Something a lesson that ought to be taught to not just husbands, but even to young, young men. Teach them young that this is what this is about. He says, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor. There it is, giving honor. That's to, literally to have an honest care for. That's what it is to honor something. I truly care. We understand that all the way back in Genesis, in Genesis chapter number 2, rather, when God created woman, created Eve, she was created by God. And what were the, what were the words that were used? She was a helpmeet. That's, that's what she was created for. Today, that phrase, that word, is rejected by many women saying, well, I'm much more than a helpmeet. Do you know that's not an insult? That, that is not an insult. That, that is actually, to a husband who gets it, that is, <laughs> that's not insulting at all. And it shouldn't be insulting to a wife either. She is not just a wife. In many cases, she is also a mother. You know, oftentimes, men do not have so much trouble honoring their own mothers, but they have a hard time honoring their wife in the same way. Well, a man should have no problem honoring his wife. He should have no problem honoring a mother. And he certainly should have no problem honoring the mother of his children that they share together. That's, that's the picture here. It says, treat her as a weaker vessel, giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Now, here's where all the people stand up and say, I'm not weaker. I can do anything a man can do. That's not what God was, had intended there. There are cases where women can do more than men can do. I can point them out. There, there, are, uh, there are women who can bench press more than I can. There are women who are better athletes than I am. It isn't about weaker and saying that that's some kind of an insult. Uh, this, this weaker vessel thing that always seems to get blown way out of proportion is not a negative thing. It's not a derogatory term. Weaker here refers to God's created order of humanity. Go all the way back to the Bible. Who was created first? Adam. Who was created second? Eve. That's all that it means. There is the created order. Sure, some cases she may be weaker. But look what he says. We're, we're worried about the weaker. How, how would a wife like this, as given unto honor as unto the weaker vessel, so you're telling me that a wife would not like to be treated with tenderness and gentleness and kindness. I've never met a woman who says, I don't like tenderness, I don't like gentleness, I don't like kindness. That's what it is to give honor unto the weaker vessel. The real strength, real honor, real honor is, is by treating her that way. And then look what he says. As, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. Heirs together. Husbands and wives live together because they are joint heirs of the eternal glory of God. In other words, men don't have a greater glory to look forward to than women do. It is the same grace of life. What is the grace of life? The grace of life is the free benefit of everlasting life that's been given to us. 
She has as much of God's grace as I do. Husbands and wives are equal in the sight of God as it, when it comes to this matter of grace. And then he finishes with this little phrase, that your prayers be not hindered. That phrase, is, it, it ends that because it's saying that if these things are not observed, if wives are not in subjection to their own husbands, if husbands do not dwell with them according to the knowledge and giving honor unto the wife, and treating them as heirs together the grace of life, your prayers will be hindered. What does it mean to hinder prayer? Well, we talk about hindrance of prayer. We think about Peter admonishing husbands here to live with their wives and understanding, talk about wives living in submission. But when these things are carried out, when these roles are carried out, we see that the prayers are together. When you have husbands and wives who are divided, they're not living together in mutual respect, it will cause prayer to be hindered or to be stagnant. God, folks, holds the unity of families in high regard. How those families recognize the godly order. If you have a situation where you say a wife doesn't want to be in subjection to her husband and the husband doesn't want to dwell with his wife according to knowledge, you have a situation, you have a recipe for disaster. God holds the family in very high regard. Wives, we're told here, should be in sub submission to their husbands, not out of dread, but a desire to please God. The husband's responsibility to the wife is to love her as Christ loved the church, gives all respect unto her, provides for her, protects her, and puts trust in her. They are heirs together of the grace of God. Heirs together. All the blessings of this life and the life which is to come, we ought to be marked by living peaceably, living together. Those who know what it is to live in this kind of an environment understand that it is not a, it is not a, uh, it's not a burden to live that way. Husbands don't find a burden to say, wow, Christ wants me to love her like he loved the church. I told you I haven't reached that, but the thought doesn't burden me. It's a, it's a matter of I want to do that. I want to love her the way that Christ loved the church. That's what I desire. I don't look at that and say, man, God, why have you given, why have you given me such an impossible thing to reach? I look at that as a privilege. I say, that's, that's a privilege. And if wives would look at that the same way and say, listen, what God's asking me to do is not a burden. It's a privilege. When we think about all of these things that God has given us, remember, he's been talking about submission to authority as a, in general. He's not just all of a sudden jumping out and saying, now you can disregard all other authority in this life, but wives, make sure you submit the authority of your husband. No, he's, remember, he told them, like you have submitted to all other authority in your life, that's the same way it ought to be in your home. And that goes for men as well. We ought to submit to those authorities. So when we think about this going forward next week, what Peter is now going to do is he's going to take all of these thoughts together and he's going to deal 
with being submitted to suffering. It's not a doesn't seem to be a very positive message, but remember, these scattered Christians were suffering greatly. They were suffering persecution. He's been telling them, no matter how bad the Roman government is, remember, you are to be submissive to the authority there. And he's going to tell them this phrase in verse 8, and that's really what will be the title of the message. He says, be ye all of one mind. Be ye all of one mind. There's a principle here. It's about unity. Unity in the home, unity in the government, unity in the workplace. Unity is of such importance. So I hope tonight this will be a help to you as we dealt with, with husbands and wives. And next week we'll, we'll, we'll deal with verses 8. And we, we probably won't get all the way to the end, but uh, we'll be looking at verses 8 through verse 22. So if you want to go ahead and read ahead for uh, next week, that would be great. All right.